ladies and gentlemen, please put your hands together for Brian Gray and Talking Shop. Welcome to Talking Shop, uh, the podcast where I, Brian Gray, dive into my guest relationship with their work to learn why they love to do what they do. Holding the Hanukkah mug tonight is uh, performer, teacher, and writer, Rick Walker. Yay, me. (laughs) I remember the first time I met Rick, I was introduced to him in the lobby of the Steel City Improv Theater back when he was in the north side. And I thought that, is this quiet, unassuming man, the Rick from Chicago that I've heard so much about? And indeed, that is just an undeniable part of his charm. Uh, He's humble, but a very talented, bold, and energetic player. And his approach to teaching is something that I had really not seen before. He blends science, research, acting, and and more into this uh, hodgepodge of improvisation that I found Uh, really interesting and and loved. Um, He's appeared on stage in numerous plays and independent films. Not on stage in films. You parsed (laughs) that correctly, I'm sure. Uh, He's improvised with the Improvised Shakespeare Company, Comedy Sports Chicago, and The Second City, and is now appearing in his debut on Talking Shop, an improv podcast. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, it's my pleasure to introduce Rick Walker. Thank you, you guys. Thanks. Hey, Rick, and as a special hey, treat for this, I believe, eighth episode of Talking Shop, uh, for a first time ever. Uh, this is your Talking Shop birthday episode. I got you a gluten-free cupcake. Nice. <laughs> it's a cappuccino cupcake. I, thank you. Um, I was actually going to say we should sing happy birthday, but that would be illegal, and I couldn't broadcast this podcast. So we'll just say happy birthday, Rick well, Walker. Thank you. you know, <laughs> thank you. Let me make a quick wish. It's and about to th- come true. Oh, yeah, because it's all about the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm gluten-free, not by choice, by my body's demands. So, were you thinking people were getting, like, really angry? People are, like, people are, like, pissed at gluten-free people for no good reason. It's just, like, another thing to be pissed at people about. It's like, you're not special. <laughs> Eat the wheat. <laughs> I, have, I have friends who are gluten-free by choice, but I guess I was a vegetarian by choice for many years, so I don't, I don't fault them for it. Yeah, that's, I don't know if that's the same thing. At least that's like political. You know, going wheat free is not, you know, <laughs> they, they save the grain. Reasons. Yeah, right. <laughs> that is right in my face. Right? I know. Smoke follows beauty. <laughs> Aww. You know who says that? I heard that. Yeah. <laughs> Satan says that. <laughs> um, but uh, it does look like I've been chomping away at that because that fork's all covered in frosting, but it's just I carried it in a thing, and then it was all mushed up, as you can see. So I tried to print in an actor, uh, stage and screen, as mentioned, a writer, a director, a teacher. Um, has, has studying improv, you feel, helped you in those other areas? Absolutely, absolutely. I think, and actually, I, I've just recently designed a course for uh, University of Pittsburgh. It's uh, an improv for actors course, and it's uh, sort great. of using uh, improv philosophies and techniques and, and short-form games uh, to get to text and to explore text. So it's, it's been a really fun challenge. 
And I think there, there are a lot of things that uh, improvisers do that help actors. You know, when, you, when you're in an audition situation, just making quick decisions about your character, you know, running with, uh, one, taking one little bit of information, like at a cold reading, taking one little bit of information and just running with it, you know, it's invaluable for an actor. For sure, yeah, I, I find that a lot of people, uh, I mean, not as much, I guess, when I'm talking to actors, um, and that some of them have been like, oh yeah, we've done improv in class, but it wasn't, you know, I can't imagine doing it, whatever, but normal people, non-theater people will talk to me and be like, I can't believe you do what you do, uh, or, or if they want to learn it, it's because like, they're like, I want to be funny on command, and it, I think the kind of stuff you're talking about is more what I get out of it, too. It's like not that kind of stuff, but it, it is interesting to take, to take in someone who is an improviser, not an actor, to design that um, improv for acting kind of class. Mm -hmm. like, do you, because I assume when you're acting training, you came across improv in that more actorly way. Sort of not. I, w I mean, uh, I trained, I went to a, like a conservatory uh, undergrad program, and we didn't really do any improv okay. or any kind of like what they call devising now, where, where you're sort of creating your own stuff. I mean, we did very little, uh, mostly in a movement class, and we, but we did have to create our own uh, one-person show um, as a graduation, as a senior thesis. Um, but we didn't, I was never really exposed to improv until I started doing it with my first troupe. Like, and we were kind of self-taught. Mm. Just, we knew about improv. Uh, and uh, some of the people that we were working with had done comedy sport. There was a short-lived comedy sports in Columbus. But we basically just started playing and we just started playing out immediately at one of the comedy clubs gave us a, a, a time slot. So we just kind of figured it out in front of the audience with no real training. Yeah, that's, I mean like, I, it's, it's almost in a way, so I, I find the actorly improv stuff great, but it's, it is so different, I think, from what we do where it's trying to kind of create for the sake of create, for performance and creation. So in a way it may be better that way, but um, uh, interesting either way. Uh, I, I guess moving forward a little bit, like I saw, so you, Improvised with Improvised Shakespeare in Chicago, and I just saw my first Improv Shakespeare show last weekend. Oh yeah, when I was there. <laughs> nice. I never caught up with them, and it was it was really amazing. Just I was blown away by it, um, and I was hoping you could talk a little bit about the process of rehearsing and performing that show, um, and how it's different from other long form you've performed. Sure, um, that show uh, I was with them the first seven years. Of, of the group, there it's a, it's a going on its ninth year, I guess, because I've been gone for a year and a half. Um, so when it started, uh, so it's directed by Blaine Swen and created by Blaine Swen, one of the world's great improvisers and and hum humans. He's a, he's a great guy. Actually, he's getting married next weekend. I'm going to his wedding uh, in Chicago next week. Um, he's a very quiet Blaine Swen fan in the crowd. <laughs> yeah. Blaine is awesome, and all women love him. It's sort of a rule. If you have not a dangling Y chromosome, is that right? Or <laughs> if you have a Y chromosome, you are a woman, right? then you are in love with Blaine Swen. All right, so that's the rule. Um, so when Blaine started this, uh, uh, sort, sort of like uh, one of the things about improvised Shakespeare that's uh, different than most long form is that it's, tell it's a play. So it's telling a cohesive story, one 
basically one big story in the style of Shakespeare, of course. Um, so uh, doing that, which is different than a herald, where these strands may or may not come together in some way, uh, in, in an improvised Shakespeare, it always comes together. There's a lot of balls that are being thrown up in the air, and they're all being caught. Um, that's the goal. And so... Um, I just jump in question. So do you still start, in a way, keeping the, the temples far apart? Like, are there kind of, not necessarily beats or however you think of it, but you still start with, like, this story, this story, this story, but you know it's coming together? Or does it start more in a narrative... No, uh, you're, you're, you've, you don't worry about how they're going to come together in the first act. You just play, you know, balls out crazy for the first act. And then we go backstage. We don't plan anything out. We just kind of recap what has happened in the first act. So what are people's names uh, and what do they want? Mm. So, we, so playing uh, your wants super hard is really important. Uh, more important, I think, in Shakespeare than... I think it's always important, but really important in improvised Shakespeare because that's how we bring the play together, is like how hard you play your wants and how, how much you get and how much you don't get satisfaction. Um, so we, we re recap those things, and then we goof off for a while backstage, and then we start <laughs> the second act and, and really aggressively go for satisfaction or some wrap-up. But we don't plan anything. First act, just get crazy. Second act, remember everything you did in the first act and bring it together. It is fascinating. I mean, I, I do think, so there is that intermission, and um, I've done shows before with an intermission, and I think people have said like, oh, you guys just figure everything out there. And, and it, it's almost like it, you, you need, I was, when I was watching the show, also thinking like, I wonder what they do during the intermission. Because you, you almost don't want to, like you get in your head so much if you do talk about the show. But I think what you said is like such an, a great approach where it's like recap, focus on your memory, and then you know, reapproach the second act anew. Um, but definitely one of the things that really blew me away was how, how narrative it is, and I think that's why it's so approachable. The show tours and, and yeah. people, I think it's so accessible to people who don't know improv. Yeah, and it, it's, it's funny because uh, it, people that know Shakespeare really love it because we, we study it super hard. We, really? Yeah, meet with uh, a couple of professors from Loyola that use Shakespeare. Uh, one is a Shakespeare scholar and the other is a philosophy professor that is a Shakespeare scholar that uses Shakespeare to uh, discuss four major branches of philosophy. Mm. And so um, we met with them from the, well, with Kutrafello, uh, Prof Professor Kutrafello, Dr. Kutrafello, from the beginning. So like every six weeks, two months, whatever, uh, for a long time we would meet with him uh, and discuss one of the plays. So we would read, you know, Othello, or we would read Merry Wives of Windsor and then talk about the play with this scholar or scholars. Um, so it was really great. Uh, the, the group, that group of guys that Blaine has assembled are interesting in that they all are really like, they really like studying this stuff. So they're, they're not lazy, you know, like your typical improvisers that don't want to actually put in the work. Uh, this is a group of guys that they like sitting around and discussing Shakespeare and getting into it. Um, it's also unique in that uh, Blaine has assembled pretty much a group of alphas and has reined them into play in ensemble fashion. And it's a different way of looking at ensemble uh, 
than, than I've seen in other places where it's like you, you have your alphas and you have your support players. Um, everyone can do both. Everyone can, each person can carry the show if they need to, or they can sit back and, you know, uh, there's certain players that, you know, definitely carry the show more often than not. <laughs> um, but I think any one of those guys can carry a show if they need to. And so um, this is a way of looking at ensemble where it's like it truly is uh, a group of individuals that contribute to the whole as opposed to like really finding the uh, where you have some ensembles that it's really like plugging the right kind of people together so that yeah. they're fulfilling all these different roles. Uh, which people kind of has their place that they fit in. Yeah. It is fascinating. And, and, and you think, too, with Shakespeare, like, the, the, it's not only is the ensemble so important, but in those shows, everyone plays multiple roles, usually, too. Oh, yeah. And I think the ability to not only keep that straight, but also find not only what role am I playing, but what role is needed by this piece, mm -hmm. it takes that, that right kind of improviser. And it's always, like... Uh, am I going to be pimped into playing a scene with myself? Is someone going to make me play a scene with myself where I have to like make love to myself or something like that? You know, there's, there's always that that comes up or someone's making you have to sing some song or do some rhyming poem that's written, uh, some love letter that's written in rhyming couplet. On, you know, it's like someone's always messing with you in that show. It's so fun. Uh, so there were a few other great groups that you were involved with in, mm -hmm. in Chicago. The, um, the Second City, um, Comedy Sports Chicago, mentioned Improvised Shakespeare more and more and more. Um, just kind of interested too, so of all those groups, like say I were headed to Chicago tomorrow, is there one or two or three places you would recommend like I start performing with or studying with or did you personally like find the most value just in experiencing a lot of those different styles? I, I think it, it's difficult to really become a complete improviser, and I, I don't know that I ever have been become one. Uh, there are certain things that I think I do well, and you know that's good enough. You know, I'm pretty happy <laughs> with where I am. Uh, I, I think that if you can study at both Second City, if you can study at Annoyance, I/O, and uh, Second City, I think. Doing all three is really helpful to most people, but most people sort of find their their level. They they find where they like to be, where they fit in best. Because the vibe at uh, at annoyance is a bit different than the vibe at IO, and uh, the thing the stuff that's going on. But you know, everybody wants to work at Second City because they pay money <laughs> and you can make a living with them. And I was lucky enough to do that for for many years. So I mean, that's that's the place that pays you a professional wage. So I think, you know, that's where people want to end up or start out or whatever. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, that makes sense. Um, so I'm going to dig in a little bit more. We, we got into it a bit with um, Improvised Shakespeare, but kind of some of the philosophy that you've um, been able to teach since you've been in Pittsburgh. Uh, you taught a workshop at Steel City, uh, I think it was earlier this year, or last year, uh, called Hell Yeah. And in the description, you mentioned four qualities that were nearly universally considered necessary to be great at improv. Uh, so one of them was you were calling the Hell Yeah quality. And I'm uh, 
kind of interested in what the other ones are. Oh or like boy, all you know when are. you write those <laughs> promos. <laughs> I uh, you, wrote you, that like a year ago. You, and if you don't remember, that's fine. Or like, even if you can kind of paraphrase at the top of your head, but like, so what was fascinating to me about it was that you were saying like, just in conversations with people, a lot of these themes come up and having not had the privilege of having conversations with those people, uh, that's really interesting to me that a lot of these themes keep coming up. Yeah, you know, uh, so... I was trying to put together a, a few years ago, a couple years ago, I was trying to put together like uh, a weekend intensive uh, to do in Columbus. And it was going to be like two eight hour days of, of improv and to focus on different skills. Because um, that's great. the way that's the way I like to teach improv is like focus on one skill at a time and then I'm not worried about teaching everyone to be a great improviser right away. I'm just teaching like one part of the puzzle, one brick in the wall. Um, so uh, I was trying to come up, so I did an informal poll of like all the best improvisers that I knew in, uh, in Chicago and uh, sort of the response that I got um, were people that agree with you every time that didn't make you feel like judged or like a jerk. They just like agreed and ran with it and that's where the hell yeah workshop came from. Um, Listening was another skill that people um, really liked from other other people. Um, high reference levels, being able to make uh, a lot of great references, and to uh, be able to uh, to to do them for yourself. So I, I, I've come up with a few exercises to help that, but I've never really come up with a whole workshop for that <laughs> one. Um, and uh, another one of those things is. Uh, playing quickly and fearlessly. And so uh, the speed of fun kind of uh, a workshop that I, I did, uh, which I think you were part of. I was, yeah, that was great. Uh, just thinking of, of ways to just get out of your own way as an improviser and to think. I, so I've been thinking a lot about uh, teaching because I, I'm in a, an MFA program where I'm looking to become a college professor and I'm been working on my philosophy statement and this. And so I think what I do is I teach, I don't really teach improv necessarily or acting, I teach creativity, I think. And so um, what are the things that help you be more creative? And I think that primarily it's uh, not being afraid to make choices. And because I think a lot of people just sort of they, they're afraid of making the wrong choice and so they don't make a choice. So I, I spent a lot of time working with students and empowering their own voice and to make a choice and never apologizing for it, <laughs> run with it. And sometimes we say the wrong thing and sometimes we say some things that we don't really mean and I, I want the classroom to be a place where you can do that. You can say some really heinous shit and uh, we'll just accept that it's that it was intended with the right spirit and that that's not necessarily your true belief. Now, if we, you'll see a pattern develop with people and you'll learn just how racist they really are or how, <laughs> how hateful and how much they hate their mother or whatever. You, you see these patterns evolve, but you know, this is, the classroom is the place to kind of let that fly. And um, when you start playing really fast, you can also censor yourself a little faster so you can, uh, do a clean show, or you can do a filthy mm. show and make it a choice and not just, you know, I'm desperate, so I'm going to say something ridiculous. That, that, is, I don't mean. that is really fascinating. And it, 
I want to get back there. Uh, I'm wondering for you, do you know where, like where that is that always something you felt or where that kind of philosophy was uh, came from for you the, about like the the importance of making even if it's the wrong choice, kind of make it first before the judgment comes in. Uh, no, I didn't always think that way. I think I used to play a pretty like I only want to say with my first troupe, which was Midwest Comedy Tool and Die, back back when I first uh, got out of undergrad. Um, we were very focused on laughs per minute. We mm. played in comedy clubs, and we were <laughs> we were joke 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 uh, oriented, and so I was very concerned about saying the right thing, being cool. I was also like fresh out of, you know, I was like 22 trying to get laid and, you know, comedy was my rock band. And, you know? <laughs> and so I was very concerned Ladies about... Ladies love improvising. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, I, I have to say it was pretty successful Not for true. us. <laughs> when you're on the road playing colleges and comedy clubs and everyone's drunk... <laughs> Does, you is. do all right. <laughs> all right. So, uh, so I, yeah. So I wasn't. I wasn't always playing that way. So I, I, I played very differently back then. Mm. Um, uh, so, the, so sort of learning later on. Uh, our first improv teacher was really Paul Sills. We went to this right. summer. Yeah, this summer intensive. So we had never studied. We we'd been doing improv for like four or five years on the road, and then we went to. Wisconsin to study with uh, Paul Sills, and he uh, kind of hated us. <laughs> he would be like, what the fuck is that? That's not improv. That's the 12th week of a sitcom. You know, <laughs> so He hated our approach and, and kind of got us to thinking about not being so joke-oriented. Um, but it was kind of a tough transition because we had been doing it pretty successfully and we were all, by that time, we were all making our living through doing improv on the road. Wow. And so it was, it was like, it ain't broke, don't fix it. But, we, but there was sort of a push to improve and get better and that guy had been doing it way longer than we had, <laughs> more than 50 years you know, by that point. Um, so we started to play that way a bit and that was my first, the first time that I really started to see that you don't have to try to make jokes, that you are enough, your references are enough to make a good scene, and that it's really more about relationship than, than jokes. Um, so I, I did want to talk about that speed of response workshop, because I, I really found that to be um, not only an interesting workshop, but such a unique approach to teaching improv. Um, so it, it kind of was merging some ideas from like brain research in, and so you'd say like here's some ideas here's some like paper and pencil exercises and then here's how that relates to your improv and the short time that I had with you as a coach reinforced that idea to me kind of what you were just talking about that improv involves training your mind to work differently um, and not just about you know here's some notes about scenes you just did so uh, I wonder if you could talk a bit about like what sorts of things you do when you work with teams to push them to to get to where you have had that experience over time, like to just change the way your mind works to play in that mode. Yeah, so uh, this summer I, I got to study with a guy who's a, a comedia and clown teacher, pretty uh, uh, renowned. His name is Chris Bays, and he's, he's a... Uh, 
he's a great teacher, and he, I learned something that really amplified what I had been trying to teach and kind of altered the, my approach to it. And he has this thing where he, he says, play at the speed of fun. And I've made this sort of central to my own work. And the speed of fun is uh, faster than your fear, louder than your critic. And I, and I love this, this idea is like playing on, on like the edge of the cliff um, and not being afraid to fall off. So you're never, you're never like, you know, you're always playing quicker than your brain can work. And I've, I like to play that way. And I like to play out in front of my conscious thought um, and, and then justify what I just said after <laughs> I said it. Uh, and, and so I think this, is, this has become pretty core to the way I've been teaching this year, uh, is playing at the speed of fun. And even in my acting classes with, uh, with some students, it's like, we're really going to just dive in and not worry about it until later. We, we always have time to do notes later. Let's play faster than that. So uh, I, I think that it's a really important part of, uh, of playing well. And that's when you, really, when you really embrace the idea of that first thought, best thought idea, and just embrace whatever your impulse is and run with it. And, Hopefully your scene partner will assume that's a gift as well and, and say, hell yeah, and, and just run with it. Yeah, well, and it, you bring up notes, which is interesting to me because I, I love that, that way of thinking. And I think in my mind, and sometimes with groups I coach, I always try to say, like, we're going to do stuff on stage, and everything we do is going to be great, and don't think about my notes. But then I will also give you notes, and that's just kind of like on this path to try to figure out, you know, uh, different, not different ways we could have done that. That was all great, but like, I try to explain this thing. Like in my mind, I don't think about notes when I play, but I like getting notes because it's like, here's uh, oh dear lord, uh, here's sorry, <laughs> we're, I'm like I could talk forever. Um, so my point is like, how do you cross? Like, do you still give notes, and how do you cross that bridge of like I I don't want you to I want you to play without your critic, but then at some point we still have to push ourselves to be able to learn, you know, if you, yeah. if you never get any notes, you, you won't push yourself. I, I have a tendency to give quite a few notes, really, but they're not notes like, um, you know what you should have done was right. this. Yeah. They're always notes that are like, um, uh, here's a general way of thinking. And when, mm. I, when I work with a team, I, I usually... Uh, look first at the biggest gaps that that they're with the biggest deficits. Like, are they all really timid? Is no one really uh, making aggressive choices? So we'll just work on scene starts, you know, for for a couple of weeks, and just how do you start a scene so that it has a better chance of being a good scene? Um, if if they really aren't good at just make if they just do bits and no relationship, then we'll just work relationships. So then the notes are like. Uh, who who were you to this other person? What did you want from them? What physical action did you try? And they'll they'll say, oh, I didn't think of that. Well, these are the things that I want you to think about to to do something, not just talk about something. Right. To show us something, to have an emotional response. So the I'll, I'll, my notes are more on those lines, and and usually the. The rehearsals are more like 
coaching one skill. So we're going to work on just emotion and emotional response. So yeah, I like I like working that way. That does that does help. I, I still want to like. Is there an easy way to set that up that you're like here? So who were you to this person? And I want you to be thinking about relationship. But then you go on stage, and I still want you not to be thinking I'll critique you if you don't think about relation. Like that's the hard dichotomy for me. Yeah, it's hard because, and of course, especially as you're, le and you're learning and you're a young improviser, of course you're thinking. About, if you ever see a baby walk, it's, <laughs> it's like, I'm going to move my right leg. I mean, they don't even know right from left, but they're like, I'm going to move this leg. And they put it out there, and then they're like catching their balance, and they're like, I'm going to move this leg. And they move that one, and it's like, it's all very conscious and deliberate and clumsy. For the they, podcast audience, he's moving his legs <laughs> as if he's an adorable baby. <laughs> and they, they, of course, you know, they can't run. They can't sashay real sexy you know they can't do anything they can barely because they're thinking mechanically mm. so we want to get to the point where we're not thinking about the mechanics of our improv that we can just sashay real sexy you know it's like <laughs> without thinking about it so you know you, you build that you build that and you build that so uh i will give them one thing like if i'm coaching a team i'll have that i'll just have them think about one skill um, and not worry about everything else, that it'll come. And I kind of started doing that because when I was teaching a lot at Second City, and then my students would come to watch Improvise Shakespeare, I would think, oh, what, what did we work on in class? Because I want to make sure to nail that this <laughs> yeah. week. And so, and that tended to be very successful. They're like, just giving yourself one thing to kind of focus on, the other stuff kind of falls into place. Uh, and you had mentioned one so that failure quote i think i had heard it uh from you maybe a little differently but i love that quote so much and and i wonder in your own work um how how you prevent yourself from kind of playing comfortably and really continue to to play you know at, at the edge of that cliff so that you're uh like i find even in my years much less than yours but it's so easy to kind of I've been with this group for so long, I'm just gonna do what I know I do with them. So how do you keep yourself pushed right at that edge of the cliff? Uh, I think whenever I start feeling desperate or stale or uh, like I'm trying to come up with jokes when I'm in the back line or whatever, <laughs> I just remind myself one thing and that's listen. Listen and then just respond and build on whatever that last thing that was said. And that tends to bring me back to to center or gets my mind in the right place and 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 just like you can't think about all these other things but you can listen and think about what is actually being said and done and retain it and you know that's the focus you need when you're playing that's a great place to remind me to listen because we're going to do some improv uh <laughs> you have uh you have a couple of so like we're going to do a couple different um kind of pieces and uh, so that I know what they are, as well as these guys, maybe you can just set up what we're going to do first, or both of them. Yeah. Uh, so, I, you know, it just occurred to me through this listening thing. So, uh, something that I really love to do to teach listening and playing, and just playing on the last thing you you heard is uh, is doing a, a duologue. 
So we should do a duologue, and cool. a duologue is basically, I learned about them from, uh, from a form called Weird Ass. Do you know this? I think Stephanie you... Weir and oh, Bob yeah. Dassey uh, <laughs> did this. They have this two prov that they call Weird Ass, That's and it's great. basically they work together to do a, basically a two-person monologue, and then they do a series of scenes using that as the source material. So it's a really fun form, and... Uh, but I, I love this, the, the way a duologue works uh, to teach all of improv because really you're just listening and building on the last thing that, w that your partner said and so you, you heighten that way. And I think it's a great way of like thinking about scene work because we're constantly building on the last thing that's said and so then a scene can go anywhere instead of being bogged down in whatever the suggestion was or getting caught up in one idea you know, you're constantly moving it somewhere. Yeah. So we should do a duologue and love just it. see how that works. And I love, uh, I love, love, love doing broad, ridiculous characters. <laughs> and so uh, we can take some out of my arsenal and just mess around with them and, just tr and also just try to come up with some characters on the spot based on the suggestion. So we can, why don't we do that with a duologue? Just come, yeah. just play with some character work as do a log, and then um, and then I'll shoehorn some uh, some of my characters into maybe some sort of an interview or something. Sure. Uh, the is this something we can do seated at these mics, or should we open the stage up? Uh, we can probably just stay seated and just. Uh, that would sound the best. So. <laughs> let's do that. Uh, <laughs> and uh, let's start with a duologue. So a duologue, we're just gonna we're gonna do some characters, and it's as we're gonna do it direct address to the audience, yep. and as if we're in a documentary, and uh, cool. it's like the Harry Met Sally. Yeah. Uh, the. Uh, videos of the old folks, how they met. So we're going to do something like that. Are we, uh, so we're in the same, like we, we have a relationship with each other. We're in the yeah. same segment of the documentary. We know each other intimately well. We're, we're yeah, like we the do. oldest, oldest friends or whatever. Um, and we finish each other's sentences. Mm. So that's what we're going to try and do. Work together, finish each other's sentences, and see where this story goes. And I told Zach that you will just end this. So when you feel like this is a great, because I don't know how long it's supposed to go, so you can call a scene. Uh, yeah, we won't we'll, go super long, but... Uh, okay, and we, and you're using a character you have, or should we get No, we'll, we'll both, we'll just find it we'll in the it. thing. Yeah, but we'll, we'll base it on the suggestion, so... Okay. Let's get a suggestion for, uh, how about an object you would find, and we'll also get a, a country, why not do that? A locket. A locket, and how about a... Lithuania. And let me uh, get a little bit into your brain. So when you okay. hear like locket, uh, what is your first thought to like get into a physicalization or like where does locket translate into character for you? Uh, so that, that says to me like a family heirloom, mm -hmm. something on the inside which is precious. So it's going to be, you know, a very important uh, with either like a locket of hair or a picture of someone that I love, um, so that, that's where my brain immediately goes, so it's some, something valuable and precious. It's funny, as you said that, I realized that I did not think of what a locket was correctly. I was like literally thinking of, I, I got necklace, but I was thinking there was a lock on it, because I think it's the word lock. So somehow I was like thinking of like, like, and also I guess Lithuanian, I was thinking of just like 
uh, I, this is way racist. Speaking of not racist, but like stereotype, <laughs> I'm just thinking I'm like a like like large man with too big a family, um, who can, apparently keeps his stuff locked up. Um, <laughs> it's like, so I guess it's more like word association, but maybe but that, that, that would works. that would work too. It would work perfectly. So you know, I I have the always had the most beautiful lockets. So beautiful um, they were, and and everyone was always uh, always peering at them. Peering through my window, uh, which I do not appreciate. It just so happens we live in very busy city. Very busy city on the first floor. It's everywhere. It's we it, the school children get out and they walk right by our apartment. The windows are very low. Even school children can look into our windows. Low windows. He he. he says first floor, but it's more like a, like a basement floor. Sort of a ground level. In some places they call it a garden apartment because you can see the garden just outside of the window. You can see the garden and also it's in uh, the garden part of uh, Central Vespletegech. <laughs> yes. We've lived there for many years. Generations oh, of Oh, not family. so many years. Well, I'm not that old, are I'm you? Not, I'm not that old. <laughs> no, we're young. We're young people. <laughs> Depends on how old you are. <laughs> <laughs> Come, join us. Please. So, when I think about you joining us, I think also about a very small speedo. I think, I think, you know, my brother looks so good in a speedo that once you, at Vlad. a beach, once at a beach, uh, the, all the women were flocking over to us, and we had to send like them seagulls. away. We had to send them away in a raft, like seagulls. And I was bred, <laughs> and we had to 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 uh, strand them yeah, in we, the ocean. We don't want them to fight over the bread. No, there's only so much of my bread to go around. <laughs> oh, but there's a lot of his bread. Oh yes, you know. and it will rise. <laughs> uh, uh, penises. Yes. <laughs> and penis. I always like to end the scene with penises. Ah, <laughs> I always like to end with a, the more you know wipe. Yeah. <laughs> um, so before we, so we'll, we'll chat about that. Like, you want to do one more, um, like an interview style, you think? Yeah. Uh, so one of the, I like to come up with uh, uh, characters and then figure out ways to use them in like different, especially when I was doing a lot of short form, like with comedy sports, because, uh, you know, some things about the show are quite predictable. And so coming up with really good kind of characters for, uh, to play with in, in those situations, something I really love. Like, yeah. in good, bad, worst, coming up with, like, any kind of having, like, a rock-solid character that I can always go to if I'm not feeling inspired. Um, even though the, the stuff that I come up with is always completely different, uh, the characters are pretty reliable and uh and and for me i find a lot of freedom in playing a character and so i come up with stuff that i wouldn't think of otherwise with a yeah character. no that definitely makes sense and it, even this idea of like using and you you did many more hours on stage than i've done in your touring and short frame but this idea of like having these go-to characters for those lull moments is, is really it's just something I, I hadn't thought of it's very fascinating to me yeah, I, I find that it's a handy tool in the tool belt yeah. to just sort of... 
yeah. be able to work when you're not inspired. <laughs> so we're going to do some, uh, we're going to come up with some characters. Yeah, so, so I thought I would uh, roll out a couple of characters and you could hit me with some questions or something sure. and I'll try to answer them yeah. uh, improvisationally with some set characters. Okay, so we're gonna, we've just finished our human interview and now we're gonna do a character interview. <laughs> sure. <laughs> we're all set up for it. Um, uh, maybe I'll just uh, roll out like three characters over the course of the interview. Sounds good. Should I know like if I set them up or I just say like welcome this person and you'll you'll introduce yourself. Sure, why don't we do that? Okay. Uh, and you, and I should be a character as well. Does sure. That help? Yeah, okay. yeah. That'd be more fun for me. <laughs> I've been this and character maybe I'll, all night. Maybe I'll interview you. I'll use my interviewer character and interview you. You later interview on. me. Okay. Mm -hmm. That would be great. Mm -hmm. Um uh, oh, I have a character I've done before. Uh, I sometimes when I'm really bored uh, in uh, hosting shows like for Irony City shows, I would do this character that Irony City hated to <laughs> to host the show, and they're like, no one understands why you're doing a character. It was just like me going out and saying like, welcome to the show, we're Irony City. So I'll do that character. Okay, awesome. Uh, hello everyone. Uh, this is. Uh, this is the interview show. It's very late at night here in Belgium. And uh, that's why you've tuned into WZVB, the fancy interview hour. I'm your host, Belgian Sven. They call me that because I live in Belgium. Uh, we have a special <laughs> guest with us here tonight. Please introduce yourself. Uh, my name is Ram Johns. I'm sorry, what? My name is Ream. Ream John. Could you spell that for the audience? W-I-L-L-I-A-M. Ream. Ream. Ream, uh-huh. So nice to have you with It is good to be here in Belgium, because you know what? I have never had a waffle in my life, like a Belgian waffle. It's a common misconception, Ream. Belgian waffles are made in Italy. That is crazy. You know, I traveled all this way, and I'm not going to get a malted bread product. Have you, have you ever had a French fry dipped in mayonnaise? Man, don't be ridiculous. Because that is, are you trying to make, I'm dry heaving even as I speak. It's a, it's a Belgian specialty. <laughs> oh, man. It's not Why like. Why did I come to Belgium? That was my first question. You're right. Now I'm questioning myself, man. Uh, well, it's been good to have you. <laughs> All right. I'm going to get back on the plane. I'll see you later. It's good to have you. Uh, but don't fret, audience. We have another exciting guest for you today. Uh, just got into the studio. Hopefully, hopefully a better time in Belgium. Please introduce yourself. Oh, yeah. My name is Maceo Del Puddin. I'm sorry. You might remember me from the 1970s, the Del Puddin' Fun family. We were a funk band. Oh, actually, of course I know the Del Pudding funk band. Oh, yeah. You, you played sold-out stadiums here in Belgium. Oh, yeah, a band so funky, we had two bass players. When I, when I was a young girl, I went to... Oh, shit. <laughs> Ow, I did not realize you were a woman. Oh. Gender specificity is much more of a continuum in Belgium. I see. Well, that don't matter to me. 
Uh, when I was a young girl, I went screaming to all of your concerts here in Belgium. Oh, yeah. You ever make it backstage with one of them backstage passes? I'm afraid I was too hideous to do so. <laughs> that didn't matter to the Del Pudding family. <laughs> the uglier you were, the more likely you were to be successful and get him backstage. Uh, please, let us know, what, what are you doing in Belgium in this advanced state of age? Well, as you know, many of the Del Pudding fun family have died. Hey, it's, I'm sorry. It's so tragic. I'm all alone with two basses, which is very difficult to play at the same time. But I'm still playing to sold, not arenas or ballparks no. or soccer stadiums but small cafes and basement bars. Well, please, please let the fans at home know about your upcoming gig. Well, I'm going to be playing at a Pistol Pete's Western Well Bar oh. in Belgium, the only Texas-style Belgium <laughs> restaurant and family fair place in awe of Liege. Oh, I love their french fries dipped in mayonnaise. <laughs> Uh, folks, uh, I'm sorry to tell you that the pudding man just ran out of the building, but we have another amazing guest for you today. Please introduce yourself. Well, how the heck are you? My name is Ed Kay, and I'm going to interview you. Oh. How the heck are you? Are you feeling okay? Well, if you'd like to, let's watch old Ed Kay. That's me. How the heck are you? Well, everyone seems to be doing well. And how are you? I haven't had the chance to respond. Well, that's okay. <laughs> I'm good. I'm good, though, Mr. Edward K. And, and how are you? Tell me about yourself. Because I don't think there's been enough focus on you. Uh, I'm doing well. Uh, one of my cats died. Oh, no. Feline AIDS, no doubt. Oh, <laughs> uh, no, no. She got hit by an automobile. Oh, that's much worse, but quicker. <laughs> I, I haven't really thought about ranking different ways of cats dying. Well, I have. There are a lot of bad ways for a cat to die and some good ways. Would you like to know either of those things? I'd be fascinated to hear a good way for a cat to die. When a cat dies for love, mm -hmm. that's a good way. That's, I can't argue with that. Sometimes, <laughs> sometimes you just love the cat too much and you stroke it too hard, oh. like Lenny in Grapes of Wrath style. I see. I thought you meant like a cat taking poison because it thought its cat partner was dead. <laughs> but it turned out it had just... It had just Already cat, taken. cat suicide is a, a growing problem that I cannot get behind. I cannot sanction that. Oh, it's a tragedy. You know, sometimes it's because of cat bullying, which is even worse problem. That really is, because sometimes those big bully cats really intimidate smaller loving cats. I have a theory that the big bully cats do it because they themselves are not accepted. They usually have low self-esteem, but that's something that they can overcome with a little tenderness. <laughs> Thank you. It's like your characters already had so much. The real thing that mine lacked was any sort of energy. <laughs> and you like come out of the gate and it's like like I think that's true a lot of times when I come up with the characters they're just like 
a lot of my plays low energy, but I think like having these like out of these characters to go back to that like have some point of view and some energy is really fascinating. Um, uh, I yeah, I, I found that to be a lot of fun, and and really just just being able to sit here and have a discussion that's so low pressure because we're just kind of exploring these characters, mm -hmm. but it's still I, I had a great time doing that. Um, uh, I thought that was a lot of fun. What what was your like? Are those characters you still pull out today, or are they like your old? Go to no, I would yeah, both. Um, I I I would. Uh, they're like like the, the Ed K character. If I ever have to interview, uh, mm. that's something that I, I like to just do as my interview thing. That's like my go-to interview style. So if, if I was hosting an interview short form game, I, I could go to that, and I can always rely on just uh, just like even just recapping what someone has already said and still get. A laugh with that character, and yeah. I don't know why it works. Like the more the more he states the obvious, like the more it works for you. Yeah, no, it's great. Um, let's talk quick too about the uh, so the first one we were um, we were also from or we were from Lithuania, uh, oh, yeah. also foreign, um, and and discovering the um, the our underground. Uh, uh, Apartment, <laughs> and uh, I think at one point, like I definitely started thinking we were like husband and wife or something. And at one point, I I figured I don't know, just decided we were brothers. But uh, I I also found that interesting too. And I noticed you were a couple times saying like this thing makes me think of this thing makes me think of this thing. Um, is that is that like a tool belt thing as well, or is that just like for that like just trying to connect thoughts together? Uh, like the way uh, the scene advances. Yeah. Like, like I think we were we were because we were in our apartment and then you were uh, we got like to talking about speedos. I didn't know if that was a trick or just happened to. Come no, because I uh, liked it. Somehow uh, the idea of people coming together just uh, the image that popped into my mind was everybody jumping into a pool, and so, <laughs> and so I just went with that. Uh, it doesn't. Yeah, these kind of mental leaps don't necessarily need to make sense. You just have to trust that you're gonna. Uh, be able to make sense of it for yourself. Yeah. And, that you're, and, you know, that your scene partner will jump on it, too. Right. I, I mean, I, I would also say I was trying... I, I think the character helps a lot to do what you were talking about earlier. Like, I think um, playing... I was really trying to just kind of play ahead of myself a bit, and it helped. We were sitting just playing character, not worrying about the scene but so much, but I found that very fun as well. Like I don't know how easy it'll be for me to translate up to a scene necessary, but uh, mm -hmm. but it's a fun way to play for sure. Um, yeah, and I think it's a it's really helpful to kind of just play in that style and not write to not write from stage. Is just I'm just gonna play off of whatever that last thing you said is. Yeah, and I, I think that's very liberating and a great way of playing. Uh, so I forgot to warn you guys. We're going to take some questions. Uh, if anyone has a question, you can just shout it out, and we'll repeat it into the microphone. Um, so we can keep chatting while you think of them. But if you have one, just oh yeah, Ben, go ahead. Uh, yeah, right. Like you, you do so many things really well. Is there anything that you wish you could do that you found difficult, or that you wish that you could do that you found difficult, like for your improv career? Uh, so the, the <laughs> yeah, the question is uh, Rick. Does a lot of things well? Are are there things that he wishes he could uh, he could do well or or better that he's or that he's 
been working on? I yeah, think. I think in some ways, I feel like I have a congenital birth defect that prevents me from being able to recall names quickly. So the name <laughs> of anything, whether it's like the name of a national monument or so, so it's like my reference level will is really slow. I mean, like I know a lot of things, but I, uh, takes, it takes me a while to recall them. So Often when playing, I just abandon that aspect of improv entirely. Like, you probably won't see me making a lot of reference level stuff. I'll just really just like kind of drill down into the relationship and have a big emotional response and, you know, play that way because my brain just is slow on that. Also, it, when it comes to references, I, I, uh, anything before like 1998, I am rock solid, <laughs> but <laughs> like after once the, once the drugs kicked in, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, at some point I just stopped taking in pop culture. <laughs> yeah, that's, so I wish I could do that better. That's for sure. That was when you were still on the road and you had to keep your pop culture up to date. Man. <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. Um, cool. Other questions for Rick? Or about the set we did, or anything for him. Uh, yeah, sure. I have a question: When you uh, when you play with folks who aren't as experienced uh, as you, there's probably a lot of little quirks and tendencies that might make you adjust. Like maybe they tend to write more, uh, and you have to get around that. Or maybe they tend to like suddenly go to outer space. Or uh, how do you play differently, and, and can you how do you deliberately help? Yeah. Uh, so let me just repeat for, so the question is, when you play with people less experienced um, than you, or maybe with a different style, how do you adapt your style for them? Uh, the thing that I think is uh, probably most important, uh, what, what something that I, I think really great and generous improvisers have is that I've, that I've been able to witness. I used to do some pro-am stuff kind of, you know, like in Chicago where like really beginner improvisers would play with some more experienced players. And thing, something that I really appreciated with some of the more generous uh, pros is that they play with such graciousness. So they, they don't make, like it's real easy to make someone feel bad or to feel inadequate when, the, when they are, <laughs> you know. So, but something that I would see in like uh, a Brendan Dowling or somebody where, where they're just so generously trying to make the other player look good. Uh, and so giving them a lot of softballs and, and also uh, sometimes that means you're just going to have to talk a lot and let them just say one little thing. Cause they get, you know, it's easy to get intimidated when you're playing with people that you've seen perform. Um, so it's just kind of giving them what they need. And, and playing with a sense of graciousness and and uh, and generosity, and I, and then everybody has fun. You know, I I've seen I've definitely seen some of the pros make the lesser less players look like lesser players, and that's not fun and it's uncomfortable ultimately for for the audience uh, if if they notice. I mean, but definitely the other improvisers notice. You know, so I think, yeah, just playing, you know, it, 
because you, you know they, they're they're not supposed to be good. If you were if everyone was instantly good at this, you wouldn't have to take classes or you wouldn't have to train. You wouldn't have to practice. Everyone would just instantly be good. But we're not supposed to be instantly good. So, you know, you don't yell at a, a baby for not knowing how to use a fork or whatever. Speak you know, for yourself. yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> you slap them. How else are they gonna learn? <laughs> But, yeah, I mean, so just kind of playing that way with, you know, it's to make it fun for everyone, I think, is a great way of playing. Uh, great. Do you have one more question? Okay. What, what are one of the more, what's one of the most satisfying things that you can, um, one of the most satisfying, uh, I don't know, experiences or terms or, you know, typically that you can take out of a scene? Like uh, something that's incongruously funny or Uh, yes, the question is, uh, in my words, what really gets you off in an improv scene? That <laughs> <laughs> uh, was a paraphrase. Does that sound about right? Yeah, sure. yeah what, what, is, what is something satisfying that, that you can take out of an improv scene? I love it when a scene kind of uh, starts in one place, and then it goes far afield from there, and then it ties back mm. to that original place. Like when there's that kind of poetic symmetry to it, and it's like, you didn't really, you never, you obviously had never planned for it to go so perfectly, but it just kind of lines up that way. And that happens sometimes. And of course, the more you play it, you know, like if you golf a lot, eventually you're going to get a hole in one. And that's sort of like that hole in one kind of feeling uh, when, when that scene kind of comes full circle like that and you nail that callback or something, you know. And, and it doesn't look forced, it's just the perfect thing to do. That's that's what I really love. So, yeah. Uh, great. Well, let's wrap it up there. The podcast today was recorded in front of a live audience at Arcade Comedy Theater uh, in downtown Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Yeah. Uh, special thanks to Zach Simons for tech and production support. Uh, the beautiful and talented Michelle Horsley for our opening theme, and of course Rick Walker. Uh, thank you, Brian, and thank you for the cupcake. <laughs> You're very welcome. <laughs> Enjoy. Uh, for this and past episodes, head on over to brianmgray.com slash podcast. And please, if you like the show here or out there in podcast land, please leave me a review on iTunes so anyone ever will hear the show. Uh, thank you, guys. Have an awesome night.
Ladies and gentlemen, please put your hands together for Brian Gray and Talking Shop. Talking Shop, uh, the podcast where I, Brian Gray, dive into my guest relationship with their work to learn why they love to do what they do. Holding the 